Hello and welcome to the Art Monthly Talk Show. This evening I'm joined by Paul O'Kane, artist, writer and lecturer at St. Martin's and Chelsea College of Art in London and who's published a book recently, Where is the Light Now? by Eodo Press. And uh, Morgan Quaintance, who is a regular contributor to Art Monthly and to Resonance FM and founder member of the curatorial project Dan Projects. Morgan will be talking about his time in New Orleans and the art scene that is happening there. But first, I'd like to open it with Paul's feature, Against Judgment, which looks at how photography has problematized our ways in which we view and judge artworks. Uh, it's quite a dense and long feature, uh, so we've got lots to talk about. Uh, but first, if I can start by asking, what for you specializes the place for photography or the role of photography in our understanding of judgment? Mm. Thanks for introducing it as a long and dense uh, <laughs> article. It makes it sound very attractive. But it is. <laughs> it is. It's got a lot in it. Yeah. Um, well, I suppose uh, most people involved in art stroke photography um, are kind of are aware, and, and people involved in photography through cultural studies, etc., historical studies as well, um, are probably familiar with the notion that um, photography's invention um, in some ways uh, democratizes visual culture mm-hmm. or something like that, 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 um, that uh, we have a technology of image making that uh, more and more... Uh, falls into the hands of uh, the um, the untrained, uh, mm-hmm. the unprofessional, the non-artist, etc., etc. You know, creating this kind of, in a way, ever increasing um, overlap uh, of 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 uh, judgment and taste and mm-hmm. value, etc., in ways that um, probably no other medium or technology uh, kind of comes anywhere close to and we seem to be I mean Walter Benjamin famously wrote uh, about that in the, in, in the 1930s sort of mm-hmm. documenting that moment almost trying to claim photography for communism in yeah. a way um, and yet uh, we're a long way down the line uh, uh, we are living another kind of photographic uh, revolution where it's kind of super abundance uh, has just become uh, extreme yeah in a way it's the pivot on those two points really that it's kind of interesting that move from the mechanical reproduction let's say towards the digital reproduction uh, that's really i think shifted our understanding of how photography is sort of in the world as you quote andre Malraux, you know the, the notion of the museum without walls and those kind of breaking down of those spaces. Do you want to talk a little bit? I mean, I think there's lots to unpack here because you do talk about a lot of these th- these themes. But mm. do you want to talk a, a little bit about that relationship between, let's say, mechanical towards the digital? Um, Is that, say, a central aspect of your of your thinking? Well, I think that. Well, yeah. I mean, that has to be you know, a, a big part of the the, the current debate. Um, um, I think that, um, as, a, as, a, as, a, as I say, you know, the, the digital phenomenon. Um, uh, a lot of the interest in the digital phenomenon is about big data now. Mm-hmm. It's actually not, in a way, about art or, or uh, 
um, it's more. It, I think of it. I think of it more of a, as a kind of quantitative analysis, mm-hmm. uh, a kind of fascinating quantitative analysis, uh, rather than um, discussions about semiotics, etc., that, that might have inhabited the last generation of photographic judgments, photographic valuations, etc. Um, I mean, that in itself is interesting, I suppose. Once you start dealing with big data, you're not actually uh, concerned with uh, the quality of any particular image at all. <laughs> you're talking about you know, this billion images here, this billion images mm-hmm. there, etc. And in that respect, you do move away from, um, as my essay sort of tries to map some of the um, ways in which photography takes us beyond uh, established systems of judgment and I suppose the big data phenomenon is, is yet another uh, yeah. means of doing that but in a way if you think if you say that uh, 1930s uh, thinkers like Benjamin or or, or somebody uh, a little bit later like Malraux um, were already kind of um, fascinated by this ability for photography to to move out of existing uh, criteria of judgment um, and then somebody like Lev Manovich mm-hmm. uh, might be doing the same thing uh, now with his big data, quantitative analysis, etc. Um, it seems to uh, support my main, well, one of mm. my main points in my article, in a way, that, that photography has always had this disruptive yeah. <laughs> effect on art and judgment, and it's always something that almost like you're trying to keep up with or catch up with or, or work mm. out, uh, and yet it keeps like, kind of slipping through through the fingers of, of judgment or something so so in for instance you know that sort of empiricism that say underpins or is kind of part of say edward moybridge's work you know that that notion of quantification that in a way that photography enabled us to to see for the first time is that you know w- what we're getting into is really how data and pieces of information are being mapped or spread out in the way in which photography provides an index by which we can then view and review mm. those thinkings. That's very interesting. Yeah, we, 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 we feature Mybridge in the essay and uh, the designer, um, or maybe yourself, the editors, uh, chose some wonderful images to illustrate the Yes, Mybridge is one of them, but uh, the way you put it there is very, very interesting. Something that I, that I like to try to do myself is take a, uh, a contemporary phenomenon like the idea of big data, uh, and then uh, historicize it to show that actual, fa- in actual fact, it's not uh, just mm. contemporary. It's in a way, it's always been the case, <laughs> and so you start to see Mybridge as a kind of early big data uh, <laughs> with this kind of because uh, you're looking at quantities yes. immediately. You think about Mybridge, just pick it, pick, picture it in your head. You're th- you're thinking about quantities and again you're not being asked to judge any of those particular frames in a way aesthetically are you uh, the photography is immediately mm. taking you through its technology into a different uh, a different valuation system which is you know, I suppose, you know, Benjamin applied that politically, um, and whether whether Lev Manovich is applying it politically, I'm not sure, but I'd be interested to know what he would say in response to that. He, he probably would justify it politically in some way. Um, but what the point I was, I was moving on to was the fact that, um, that there's a kind of... The the sort of radical democratic, uh, this sort of radically democratic uh, uh, aspects of photography um, seems 
to go hand in hand with uh, uh, with the idea of modernity and democracy being mm-hmm. uh, hand in hand, being being uh, you know, connect, intrinsically connected. That to be modern would be to be democratic, to be technolo- technologized, etc. Um, and the point I'm trying to work my way back to is that is the is the way that all of that. Uh, in, in a way that Benjamin clearly recognised, is antithetical to what art had been up until that point, which was a system of judgment and taste and hierarchy, um, which has very powerful social implications. You know, who understands what art, mm. who owns what art, who appears in the art, etc. And uh, photography seems to rubbish all of those things over and over again. Yeah, in fact, you talk a little bit about the way in which photography is able to judge or allow us to judge judgment in a way because there's this idea of the frame or the movement of the frame or the act of the person that almost unbeknownst to them as maker they're kind of unwittingly yielding to or being part of. Is that a correct assessment or is that... Well, I think the the, the, the phrase "judging judgment" that, that appears in the in in, in the essay um, is important. Uh, when I read it through again this afternoon, I thought that really to judge judgment is to unjudge, mm. if I can say that. That to judge judgment is to uh, is to want to, to is to desire a world without judgment. Uh, you know, to criticize mm. judgment itself. So in a way, it's almost like a photography gives you the, the ability to make a visual culture. Uh, that unjudges, mm. <laughs> or or that, that that judges judgment every time an image is it's made in out. some way. Yeah. And the other thing I just wanted to map onto that. I mean, it is interesting that 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 quantitative analysis um, that we've just managed to map back from Lev Manovich back to 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 Mybridge in a sort of delightful way. Um, but it is interesting that um, you can see other strands of that in 20th century art perhaps in Warhol Warhol ended up get, getting used to illustrate my, my, my feature I haven't quite worked out a link in that, but I can sort of see this kind of this lovely idea of banality and yeah. repetition in Warhol uh, and maybe that's kind of where I'm going because I think I reference uh, I think I reference minimalism in this essay briefly uh, because of this lovely American um, uh, kind of dissing yeah. of European taste as something to do with composition that they want to replace with repetition. Mm. The idea that uh, we could do away with all that horrible composition stuff, which establishes quali- sort of qualitative values, and maybe we could move to an art that's based on quantities or or, or, or a kind of more quantitative uh, um, criteria of judgment or something. So, um, sorry, maybe we wondered a, a no, bit there, but, but I was trying. I was trying to sort of. Uh, t- t- maintain that 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 thread that, that in a way uh, the, the, the quantitative aspect uh, there's something in, in photography that has always been uh, involved uh, quanti- quantities in its production and it some, some, somehow kind of bleeds out into all these other issues yeah in a way it's hard not to separate photography from the printing press itself i think i mean i know that w- printing presses preceded that with just text but the two in a way go hand in hand the idea of distributing images and how like you know newspapers and so on the distribution of those kind of things and also the distribution and the cheapness and availability of cameras to some extent yeah know. i mean I, I think it was i mean obviously there is such a thing as a kind of unique uh, photograph etc and, and 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 a very leisurely you know photographs made in a very leisurely way etc but but as you say you know right from from its kind of uh, inception uh, photography was associated with a 
associated with quantities and uh, mass distribution and uh, and uh, reproduction etc and uh, that's kind of what i'm getting at is immediately that that sort of almost like a viral effect yeah of um, course there's one, one other word that i wanted to bring into that that, 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 that that i think also gets mentioned in the essay and that's the word uh, evidence mm. Which, uh, you know, Benjamin, again, famously used that to describe the photographs of, of Azure, the, the, these kind of, these photographs that were made, um, uh, actually, uh, you know, actually in a Duchampian manner, they were, they were works which were not works of art. Mm. You know, Duchamp asked us to make works which, how can we make works which, which are not works of art? And in a way, Azure's photographs are, are a good example of that because he wasn't making photographs. Strangely enough, yeah. he wasn't trying to make beautiful, <laughs> beautiful, no, the works tr- of tree stumps and sort of shop windows and yeah, yeah. and making things as a, as a um, as a service to artists yeah. uh, th- things you might be able to use if you are an artist you might be able to use one of these pictures I've made to yeah. help you make art uh, which in a way by definition means that he wasn't making art or intending to make art and yet when we look at them now we're totally sort of uh, seduced uh, by them in a way but, um, but inevitably I think that's I mean going back to Benjamin that auratic or the aura that necessarily is fitted over the image you know, through time and through looking back on any sort of era, certainly the 20s in Paris, or, you know, they are imbued with a, a kind of, there's a something with them that is inescapable. In fact, you talk even yourself, sort of succumb to the image of picking over a flea market stall and seeing these, you know, boxes of old uh, negatives and well what 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 what, happened, what i'm doing in that part of the essay is 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 uh, going through something which we're all very familiar with our sort of generation or our time is very familiar with the uh, the seduction of the old photograph and um, and sort of pointing out that um, although we might go to the Victorian Albert Museum and see that beautiful old uh, silver print to be mm. sort of somehow strangely moved by what in what in effect is really a crude image. It's actually a crude photograph, mm. but somehow it sort of uh, photography has this special way of of, uh, of seducing us through that image, which is quite mm. complex. But the point I was going to make was that. Um, um, if you do go to the flea market at the end of the day and they're folding up the tables and you know driving away the vans you, know, you sometimes find this little scrap of an old yeah. photograph on the floor it's like the lowest co- lowest photograph of all and yet you'd still sort of uh, have to pick that up and sort of uh, cherish it this uh, strange uh, strange um, uh, peculiar kind of uh, um, sympathy mm. that we've de- developed for for the photography and for for all photographs, despite their kind of horrendous ubiquity. Uh. Yeah, there's two. I mean, actually, it brings to I just because I just watched uh, Finding Vivian Mayer. I don't know if you actually saw no, that film, but no. it traces the uh, you know the film. It traces the life of this nanny. Oh, and, I've seen, uh, I've got seen a cool story to tell you about that. Yeah, <laughs> no, I've just, like, just it. describe it. For, it just okay. it traces <laughs> this life of a nanny who, throughout her life, she took endless photographs, and uh, only when she died did they find this box of negatives or rather this you know would be uh, art student or someone found this box of uh, negatives and uh, subsequently bought them and started to scan them and now is sort of selling them or turning them back into a sort of commodity I guess mm. uh, and they sort of I suppose they represent that sort of Gary Winogrand that sort of that style of street photography yeah. and uh, I mean she herself is sort of interesting and kind of intriguing character and not much is known about her and it's sort of piecing together this biopic of yeah. her life I think really. there's lots of the, there's, there's one come out about Dublin as well that was recently mm. aired about a man who photographed everyone crossing a certain bridge in Dublin every day right. for several years or something and there's this strange archive like that but uh, 
you want to hear my cool baby yeah, and my go, story? Go <laughs> okay, basically, uh, my, my partner, my girlfriend, recently went to Detroit. And uh, uh, while she was in Detroit, she uh, got introduced to this, this guy who has, um, uh, how can I put it, like a medicinal weed manufacturing plant. Right. Uh, I think it's legal, <laughs> legal medicinally in Michigan, yeah. Anyway, this guy was one of the kids featured in Finding Vivian Meyer. He mm. was one of the children that she was a nanny for. Okay. And so today, uh, I can't tell you the location because it's top secret, but somewhere in Detroit, there's a massive garage uh, full of marijuana yeah. for medicinal purposes, manned and uh, maintained by one of the guys, one of the young children that Vivian Meyer used yeah. to photo- uh, photograph off, used to photograph. Yeah. That's my cool <laughs> Vivian Meyer story. <laughs> that must be a segue, isn't it? Yeah, let's work Kant into that now. Because you do oh. mention Kant. <laughs> well, I mean, you do actually reference a large philosophical framework through which to view judgment through. And, uh, yeah, I am going that way. Uh, so, yeah, so let's, let's open up a little bit around the ph- philosophical framework mm. you, you sort of build into it. And, of course, Kant is a, you know, a big figure in terms of judgment. Um, and then you go on to proceed that with sort of Susan Sontag and her book Against Interpretation. Uh, Gavin Butts interpretation. Yeah, I, spe- I yeah. suppose in that part of the essay, what I'm doing is uh, my sort of academic duty in a way, um, helping anyone read the essay to uh, pursue yeah. <laughs> some relevant text, some leads, etc. Yeah. Uh, and I say, I think I say that uh, we could sort of historicize notions of judgment, and I think I say that we could start with the Bible. You know, we could start with mm. some, some biblical uh, references. We could move the. Uh, through the Greeks, uh, that, Kate, uh, that, that Kant would be central to the argument, but um, but uh, might might be central to the argument. But uh, but we we move on to um, yeah, the you know, contemporary um, uh, more more recent texts like Susan Sontag's uh, uh, on interpretation and uh, Deleuze's essay that riffs on uh, an Artaud essay. Um, to have done with with judgment, mm. I think Artaud's one is called uh, to have judge to have done with the judgment of God, and uh, yeah, God pops up in the essay quite a lot. Actually. It does. Um, but let me just f- f- go and say that that, <laughs> that that I think that uh, I think in that part of the essay, um, I am you know I'm interested in the fact that uh, I mean Deleuze pops up and uh, and so does Nietzsche, and I suppose Nietzsche is really who I'd like to go back to rather than mm. Kant. Um, uh, Deleuze called uh, Kant uh, an enemy, didn't he? Yeah, mm. and um, Nietzsche's uh, I- 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 the idea that, that in Nietzsche, this idea of uh, transvaluing values and eternal return, these kind of concepts that seem to me to um, try to articulate what I suppose I'm also trying to articulate is a, is a world without judgment. Uh, um, if you really take seriously the kind mm. of model of eternal return or transvaluation of values, then you have to really strive to to somehow live outside of, of, of judgment. Um, there's no judgment day yeah. for you to wait for because there's a kind of circularity mm-hmm. that's going to not stop at any certain point and there's no real position for you to, to hold in the Nietzschean scenario. And I think that that's probably where you know, Deleuze maps on to, to Nietzsche. You haven't got any kind of fixed points mm-hmm. from which to make a judgment or, or, or etc. or any point at which judgments will be made in time either and uh, that really fascinates me and, and and i try to use that in the essay to yeah philosophically underpin it a bit. yeah because <laughs> we'll come back to well, that undermi- undermi- philosophically undermine it i should because you talk about yourself even as a writer yourself and the, the sort of the, the notion of being a review writer and the kind of the ways in which 
the fact of being a, a review writer and looking at artwork and actually commenting upon it, uh, the problematic nature or the difficulty of doing that. Mm. Um, but somehow the, the writing or the words themselves belie or kind of, in a way, inadvertently open up this situation where you actually are exposing or being presented with judgment anyhow. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think I wanted to write that bit for a long time. Um, um, that um, I've just actually started g- gone back into review writing anyway. I've just uh, mm-hmm. w- with a, a blog I've started, um, which I won't plug here. But um, um, but what I was trying to say was that when, when I first started uh, writing about art, it was it was literally uh, and honestly and seriously motivated by a kind of fear that you know mm. I was making work as an artist and I kept thinking, well, what's, what, what about this criticism thing? You know, what, what are other people going to make of this? Yeah. Do I really have to worry about that, or can I just be you know really cocky and bold mm. and just make my my work without thinking about any other kind of judgment? But obviously, I was a bit timid and uh, wanted to felt like felt a need to investigate that par- that uh, apparatus mm. so i think the reason i started writing reviews without fear <laughs> and uh, but what i say in the essay is that when i started writing review i sort of dispelled my fear by realizing that a review is always a construction that you know the words are things mm. that you stick together like like the thing you made in the studio mm. in a way and um and, and what linking back to the philosoph- philosophical angle what i was going to say was that what I've tried to nurture in my own review writing was the way that it's it's not a very watertight theory, but the idea that uh, as I tried to just basically describe what was happening to me in front of a work of art or in an exhibition, if I sort of stuck to description of experience, I might see in the quality of the words and the writing itself a kind of evaluation mm. forming that wasn't authorial judgment. Uh, you know, it yeah, sounds a bit right. woolly, I know, but 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 that's the way I sort of tried to try to keep, the, almost try to keep. Uh, um, uh, th- there's a lovely phrase in that the Benjamin says about Breton. He says, uh, "After you, dear language," uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> and I, it, it's almost like that, trying to let the language uh, make the judgment uh, or reflect mm. the, the judgment, which uh, which I describe as a kind of ekphrasis. It's a kind of yeah. it's a kind of ekphrasis. It's almost like one work of art. This piece of writing is having a sort of a reciprocal dialogue with that work of art that it's trying to describe, and a kind of mysterious judgment is coming out of that. But it's not. It's as it's as unhuman as and unauthorial as I could make it. Um, and the, well, lo- the lo- last thing I just wanted to say about mm. it was that if that was true, that there's a kind of reciprocal dialogue between the words and the work, then you might be in that kind of area that Deleuze and Nietzsche were interested in, uh, sort of outside of judgment, outside of place, in a in a kind of uh, some kind of circularity. Fascinating. <laughs> I, mean, well, I, was, I was trying to think. I was trying to link that back to the notion of even photography itself you know the idea of description as an index you know you're creating a kind of a way in which you're photographing your position as viewer as spectator too Mm. Um, and in a way you're kind of enabling us to kind of be part of that camera I think that's what Benjamin meant by the optical unconscious he meant that you know 
um, you can interpret that phrase, a beautiful phrase, many, many ways, which is always the case with Benjamin's writing. But uh, I think strictly he was trying to say this camera doesn't have a brain, you know, yeah. so it hasn't got a soul, it's a, it's a machine. Uh, and so we're having a sort of dialogue with the world through this sort of soulless, brainless, uh, consciousless uh, uh, optic. Uh, so, yeah, there's a kind of there's a kind of desire to go beyond hum- humanity, isn't there? Mm. There's a kind of, I mean, what's really interesting about it, and maybe this takes us back to minimalism, Warhol, banality, uh, even Lev Manovich and the big data in a way, is that in all these cases, there's a kind of desire to um, release ourselves of human judgment and let other th- Mm-hmm. things other processes other technologies do the work and what really interests me about it is that um is that that becomes a strangely desirable um i'm tempted to say aesthetic but it's maybe the wrong word but but if you if you see what i mean that uh, um w- what we like about aj's photographs is the fact that they don't impose or they, you know, is, is that they're, they're this kind of evidence? You know, the mm-hmm. ben- Benjamin respected them as a kind of almost like a police photograph. You know, the, you know, the policemen aren't renowned for their their aesthetic judgments, but <laughs> but Benjamin is trying to say that in a way, it's this like a police photograph. Mm-hmm. The, the evidence that is the kind of work that will be the artwork of the twentieth century. And again, you can see Duchamp creeping in there again. It's mm-hmm. trying to make a work which isn't to satisfy your eyes. It's doing something. Uh, doing something else yeah (laughs) I'm wondering if you want to talk a little bit about the sort of the notion of God in your (laughs) (laughs) that that chunk (laughs) because in a way it's one of the few it sort of lurks throughout uh, and it keeps you know and I was kind of wondering is it about a kind of monotheism uh, you know and the breaking of that and the splintering of that through a sort of postmodern discourse that kind of you know that's created a much more subjects around difference or well the important thing about god is that he's the highest i mean the important thing about god is that that if you have a if you have a system based on when nietzsche wanted to transvalue values he wanted to get rid of a christian uh system and a christian system has a, a god at the top uh, but we've moved towards what we're trying to do with this essay or maybe what yeah. Andy Warhol, Deleuze, Nietzsche, what all these things are trying to do is to get away from its hierarchical or vertical, uh, you know, maybe Dante-esque uh, mm-hmm. kind of uh, topology or something. You know, that, that, uh, I, I think that's the important thing about uh, uh, getting rid of God. Um, um, and uh, I make a sort of quip in the essay that, 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 uh, that within, like, there's about 50 years between Delaroche saying that you know, painting is dead and, uh, and Nietzsche saying God is dead that, uh, that, and, that, and in the essay I'm, try, I'm trying to make those mm. things kind of uh, uh, affect each other that the birth of photography is, is the death of God I suppose <laughs> <laughs> uh, but subse- and subsequently to that I would say how photography has become um, like a vehicle within the art world as well. It's not just a, you know, has become a, a further aestheticized. And we talk, you talk about connoisseurship. Connoisseurship. Connoisseurship, even. Yeah. Um, and that role at which that takes in. And, you know, you think of how photography has now become very much an yeah. institutional thing and become really well, much embedded into the art world. It's not really. It's well, so I've just, I've just, as I said, I've just started 
I, I'm the kind of person who, as soon as I say uh, I don't do something anymore, I'll go back. I'll go and start doing that because that's the last thing I expected myself to do. <laughs> so, so after writing this essay talking about never writing reviews again, I started writing reviews again, yeah. and um, I let myself choose because it's a blog, and so I don't have an editor other than myself. So I, I, I choose what I, what I fancy or what I've got time to write because I, cause I blog every, to a deadline of every Friday night. But uh, I was going to say that, that so far out of about five weeks of blogging um, photography has started to appear quite regularly in my blog mm -hmm. and um, and I think it's true you know I visited some absolutely stunning photography shows I mean curators are, are really big on photography at the moment yeah. and uh, they really are, are doing some amazing things there's a Tate show about conflict the Barbican show about architecture for example um, and they are really sumptuous, uh, as you say, uh, heavily aestheticized, museologized, uh, beautifully curated objects. I mean, I, I even describe uh, uh, the photographs of, uh, in the architecture show in, 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 in painterly terms in, in some respects and everything. But um, I still think there's an argument to make that, you know, it's, it's an endlessly difficult thing to articulate photography, and I think it always will be somehow. Um, uh, which is significant in itself but uh, what I'm trying to say is that no matter how sort of painterly or masterfully the photograph comes to inhabit the traditional gallery space I suspect and I believe uh, I think that there, there's still a peculiarly photographic element mm -hmm. uh, language that's sort of incommensurable with the traditional language of art and art appreciation and, and aesthetics and judgment etc I, I referred to it as a as a kind of um, a clipped tone or something that <laughs> that photography speaks yeah. to in a peculiarly clipped tone that nothing else still nothing else does and, and it's almost impossible to articulate but that's what anyone who writes about photography probably wants to articulate is that strange voice mm. of photography which isn't uh, which is something that none of the other arts does. Mm. Well, there's more to talk about. I, I, I don't know if you want to start talking about the role of art education, because you talk a little bit about that, but maybe we could save that and move to Morgan. Yes. Yeah, and we'll return to hey. the notion of education. <laughs> um, Morgan has just returned. Well, actually, when did you get back from New Orleans? I got back from New Orleans in, oh, I can't remember. Was it November? <laughs> November, I think. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, you've written a, a sort of letter from uh, yes, for us, amongst yes, other things. Yeah. Um, uh, if you could start talking a little bit about yeah. a kind of, because it was part of uh, the prospect or projects there that you went specifically over to see. Just talk a little bit about the curatorial framework and what was there okay. when you arrived. Okay, okay. So when I arrived in New Orleans, um, what was there was the heat, first of all. It was so hot, unbelievably hot. Um, tropical bayou. Right heat <laughs> that's the first thing that arrived the sun on my face <laughs> um and then we made our way to prospect free notes for now which was the third iteration of new orleans um biennial which is the biggest biennial or, or, or some said like the only biennial in america i'm not sure which is the right one which is a contentious sort of claim but anyway so this year um the biennial was curated by franklin sermons and franklin sermons is a curator at lacma okay um which is a los angeles county museum yes of art i think um yeah i got that right famously painted by ed richet on fire i think oh yes. was it eddie <laughs> so controversial isn't he anyway um 
uh well it's it's not it had didn't wasn't on fire it's still standing <laughs> still alive, yeah. Yeah. okay still so basically um the premise for this year's uh biennial i thought was quite interesting is that franklin chose to move away from uh, the sort of life the universe and everything approach to mm-hmm. biennials that they're gonna they're gonna show you um uh, it's gonna give you this basically a biennial as the missing link they're gonna show you everything that humanity ever needed to know about existence right. um which was a bit like what um, uh, Oquian Weezer's press release was like for the, for the Venice Biennale yeah. this year. Nobody really understood it, but it was sort of wonderfully... Yeah. Uh, I, anyway, anyway, so uh, Franklin Sermon's Biennial was basically inspired uh, by a book called The Moviegoer by um, uh, an American writer called Walker Percy. And um, he is kind of like a, a strange character, really. Like He's like an American existentialist. Mm-hmm. And he's strange, I guess, because uh, existentialism obviously happened <clears throat> in the early 20th century in France, I guess. And it sort of blew up in America a little bit later, according to Walker Percy, who wrote his novel in 1961, I guess. And it didn't really... Somebody was telling me that it sort of blew up in the 90s. Yeah. Anyway, so the novel is all about this character who lives in a sort of bourgeois life in New Orleans, genteel society, and is dissatisfied with this sort of um, sort of this malaise of just going to dinner parties and having um, uh, minor crises in his sort of bourgeois, well-to-do mm-hmm. family. So he decides to go on this thing called the search, the search for meaning, the search for authenticity. And now if, if anyone's familiar with existentialism, it's kind of all about that. Sartre's talking about, well, you've got to run away from bad faith. And also Heidegger's talk about, talking about you have to retreat from inauthentic living. You have to find the, the authentic you by um, going against the sort of moralistic strictures that have been set up by the various power structures that are making us do things that we don't yeah. really want to do. <laughs> and so within the biennial, um, he... It wasn't just the search for meaning. It was also the search for, well, what is a biennial? Um, what is contemporary art? What is a curator? What is art? You know, so all of these questions so really were set big up. questions over numerous uh, sort of, you know, what these are big, sort of big questions around what everything, the status of things. Yeah, yeah. And, and I guess, I suppose in a way that does bring it back to the, this sort of um, hubristic uh, gesture the hubristic ambition of these massive um, biennials at the moment but it, it felt a lot smaller it smelt sort of mm-hmm. it felt sort of literary and insular and it was more about an, in- an interiority as opposed to solving everybody's external problems um so yeah i guess that that's what i'd say and also i guess it had um to a bit of statistical information it had like 58 international artists showing over 18 venues right and that was spread across the city and one of the problems with the, the exhibition i felt was the way um well it simply wasn't enough artwork from local artists and i, I don't necessarily i don't want don't mistake me for saying they need some folk artists in there there's lots of contemporary artists in new orleans working to the same standard as people that you see in institutions and in, you know well-being yeah. institutions um but um yeah and, and I, I felt like this spreading it across the city sometimes it works because you get to see a lot of places but it only it only works when the 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 um the journey to get to the place is is matched by the art that you meet when you get there. Mm. And a lot of times um, in notes uh, notes for now, the trek that you'd make to the hotel lobby that was way out of town, or or, or the university setting, or the community college, the artwork didn't quite match up. 
So when you say it didn't match up, you mean it was a disappoint? It felt disappointing. Yeah, sorry, or? It, it just it, did, it wasn't proportionate to the effort right. that was expended okay. in getting there. Yes. <laughs> what, what I meant to say, you know, like one one instance, I went to a hotel lobby and it was a DVD playing on a flat screen. That was a video of a piece of work that was like it was a big neon sign saying, "I think you belong here" or something. Mm-hmm. It was just quite a, like underwhelming work. I think we've all seen enough neon, yeah. you know. So um, that was a bit of a shame. But um, uh, the, the spirit, the spirit of the biennial was in the right place. But mm, the other big failing of it was that it just didn't engage with the city enough. Why, why we're in one of the most fantastic and, and fantastical cities in the world, and we're all walking around these like sort of. Um, conservative white cube spaces when everybody's hushed and just slowly shuffling from one painting to another i mean yeah these are great but the experiences you can have yeah. across the world you know and is that because i mean that's what's interesting there's two characters here because of course everyone i mean there's a perception of new orleans that I, I i'm guessing a lot of us carry in our heads and partly that's very much informed by a sort of post katrina narrative mm. um versus the one that perhaps you're describing which is the, the you know the white cube setting in a way yeah uh, in a way what are these two narratives and how did they do they are they still redolent or do they still resonate or or has that kind of discussion in a way emptied out a little bit and is has it kind of moved on a little bit in terms of the discourse uh the, the, well I, I wasn't i didn't really catch what the sort of the discourse was around mm-hmm. those sorts of things or if indeed there was one that was identifiable that a lot of texts were being fed into or public talks and debates were feeding into and 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 sort of pulling apart but this idea that the post-katrina like um consciousness that i guess uh, we foist on new orleans yeah. from outside i didn't really feel that so much sometimes when you go to places where they've had um what you might term traumas or like big catastrophes you do get a sense of this residue that kind of holds a place down i don't want to name any cities but like because uh, uh, new orleans doesn't necessarily have that mm-hmm. it's it's still got a lot of energy it's still got a lot of spirit and um so i think i didn't really get a sense of um having to come to terms of two um contesting n- uh, sort of narrative or, or depictions of the city new orleans still felt to me like this strange magical place where anything could happen and actually the only thing that i had to overturn was my own cynicism as a city dweller from london yeah. who feels like he's seen it all and steps into a place like new orleans and just thinks ah oh, there's bands on every street corner yeah i bet they're all like trustafarians or you know in, in reality people <laughs> <laughs> it's not like that there is an amazing uh, genius loci as like um the, the uh, um what's his name uh, uh Ackroyd, who wrote the yeah. thing on london uh, talks of, yeah, yeah, Peter Ackroyd talks about London and the genius loci. That you definitely have that in New Orleans. It's an amazing place, and it, it you, it's about uh, overcoming your own cynicism. I think in order to connect with that for yourself. Yeah, you definitely make London and New York sound sort of very dry and desiccated environment for art practices. <laughs> well, I think they are, and I think the reason is, and I, I think well, obviously they're not entirely. I don't mean to make a sweeping statement like that, but I think there's a lot of sterility in both cities that sometimes overwhelms genuine uh, creativity and newness because people are sort of wandering around being self-aware being mm. ironic and, and and thinking everything's over they're thinking that they're sort of post they're living a post existence where they're, they're they're at the vanguard of nothing at all you know mm. like we've, we've we've been through everything and uh let's just rerun it again because we're never going to go anywhere else so there's nothing new going to happen um but uh, so so yeah I, I think that that threw it into stark relief yeah. uh, those my sense my sense of that 
in because I was in New York just before I went to New Orleans, and I found New York to be like it's such a, it's such a strange city. It's such a narcissistic city mm. in the sense that it's a city in the world that's depicted itself so much and even the novelists and writers who live in new york every year there's books about the city there's mm. a new one ben lerner's 1004 i just started reading it we, and it, it's funny because he 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 he, he um he sort of offered the, the best criticism of his book I've read, really, which is like, do we need another book by like a guy in spectacles about New York? And yeah. I was like, well, no, we don't, you know. But anyway, so I'm, <laughs> well, I'm getting off the point. But um, uh, yeah, just New Orleans just had well, such you were, a... You were there for a reason as well. You were there yeah. with your damn projects, uh, which you do with Daniela Rose King <laughs> yeah. and Armand Pritzandu. Yeah. Uh, so do you want to talk a little bit? Because I watched your program, uh, watch your film rather this uh, yeah. this afternoon. Did you? Uh, I did. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, I, I missed it. Well, I saw part of it when you projected it on the 30th of November, yeah, but uh, yeah. I, I saw it online, which you can, you can still view online now, actually. Yes, you can. Uh, you can, if you, if you go to our website, www.damn-projects.com, you can find it there. So basically, I'm involved in a curatorial collective with two other curators one called Amin Pritzandu and another curator called Daniel Rose King who's also a contributor to Art Monthly and we've launched this um, year-long initiative called uh, Sunday School which is like the last Sunday of every month we do a one-day exhibition and part of our program the focus is on going to emerging international art scenes now you've all heard that sort of rhetoric before but what we're doing is going to specific cities so it's not about what's happening in Russia or like you know Belgian art now we're going to like um, specific cities and looking at what's happening there bringing art back from those places and making documentaries each time so what we did when we went to new orleans is that we we made a, a shot a document half hour documentary about uh, art and culture in new orleans that started off with the biennial and then uh, sort of veered off into s- lots of strange different directions uh, taking in like transgender hip-hop artists and um you know sort of the local culture the local graphic designers um street artists, all that different stuff but um yeah, so that yeah. that was the project really, and that's what the, the yeah, it's kind of is. it's very revelatory uh, half an hour actually. Um, <laughs> but uh, I wanted to go a little bit back to the exhibition itself before yeah. we leap off back into the city. Yeah, uh, and talk a little bit about the, some of the works that were on display yeah. during the time there. And you talk a little bit about the Andrea Fraser piece, which I think seems very informative and very sort of uh, well, very reflective actually of the actual city more so than some of the other works that you describe. Yes, well. Okay, so the American South, of course, is the the location for a lot of racial tensions. Um, uh, I mean, it's always the subject of reflection whenever people are talking about slavery in the antebellum era America. And uh, whereas, like, North America ha- is in slight denial about mm. metropolitan racism, the South has always still depicted as this place that just can't get over race. And... Um, Andrea Fraser's uh, performance sort of foregrounded the truth of that situation to a certain extent. So basically, uh, what she did, her performance was called Not Just a Few of Us, and um, she uh, listened to a recording of an ordinance meeting that happened in 1991, which was um, convened to hear arguments for and against the desegregation of Mardi Gras uh, crews. So Mardi Gras crews are basically the people that get together, club together to... Uh, sit on uh, the floats that roll down the street when you're watching the parade but um, strangely enough a lot of these crews had roots in kind of Ku Klux Klan era specialist clubs for people that uh, just so happened still to not have any black and minority ethnic people on their crews and so they're saying come on in this day and age 1991 we should desegregate crews 
And so it was a really fascinating meeting where they talked about the difference between public and private, what constitutes a public organisation, what constitutes a private club where you can invite friends of mm. your choosing. And so what um, Andrea Fraser did was she kind of embodied uh, 19 uh, different uh, speakers from this ordinance meeting and then acted out uh, their dialogues and exchanges from the podium in this uh, in uh, the Ogden uh, Museum in uh new orleans i think it was ogden and so for about half for about an hour you saw her channeling all these different personas uh, different um, physi uh, physiologies and different mannerisms and ways of delivering the speech and yeah it was an amazing extraordinary it was, a, it was performance, an extraordinary performance yeah. it was like being in like a southern courtroom drama you know like to kill a mockingbird mm-hmm. or something you had all those familiar figures um uh, and the, the sort of interesting southern mannered delivery you know and of course because she had the transcripts or the recordings she actually adopted the voice or the, the sort of accents of that era as well yeah she she, she she but it was like it was a it was a subtle difference between a kind of mimicry and impression and impressions mm-hmm. and just like giving you a hint of what the persona was like which was good because it, then it made you it made you take that imaginative leap and then try and um uh, f- you know feel in the image of that who that person might be because she 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 left you enough space to use your own imagination right. you know uh, but that was a, a remarkable and she did another one i think in berlin not the, the same sort of strategy but based on another dialogue set yeah. of dialogues i think it's doing for feminism i'm not okay i'm not sure but she's obviously she's mastered this format <laughs> so if you want andrea fraser to come and like you know Read embody out, like loads of people from some <laughs> historical meeting she's probably available but in a way this work seems quite unique in terms of the rest of the content of the biennial um in that actually it was reflexive of the actual history itself i mean you do mention jean-michel basquiat who was looking for a different kind of narrative um but with other works that similarly fitted the Fraser model, where most of the works kind of, you know, what were they? I mean, basically, what, what was there? Uh, well, uh, yeah, I, I, it's hard to say. I mean, there was a lot of work there that you're like, oh, that's stuff that you just generally see at biennials. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there was a lot of um, African-American artists in the show, which I think um, Franklin wanted to reflect the, um, the the population mix of New Orleans, which is a predominantly African-American city. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess it, that, that kind of made sense. Um, and then you had some other interesting artists like uh, Kenneth Calhoun and Chandra McCormick who were taking... Uh, photographs of prison inmates at angola prison which is this sort of um historically uh um uh bad prison i i guess in the south um and then also artists a photographer called sophie t lavoff who's taking kind of uh romantic toilet photographs of new orleans mm-hmm. um and also a painter called douglas bourgeois who had this kind of fantastic realism figurative you know portraiture so you had a real mix but again there wasn't really necessarily a strong like there was some there was a, a focus on incarceration as well yeah you think, talked um, about that in your video actually this, yeah uh, this rise of the imagery of incarceration in a lot of the works yeah but it wasn't revelatory it no. was just it, it was like um one doffs their hat to something because it is an eventuality in the city but rather i just think the big like i say the failing of the exhibition is it couldn't really it's not about exhibitions over here and in the city outside they should coexist it's the most uh, like i i went to, i saw an event called public practice which i yeah. talk about in the piece which was um a uh it was um a, it was like a, a an afternoon's um performance that was about um a combating gun crime 
But what they did is they pulled together loads of street performers and kind of did a kind of a curated, um, what would you, what'd you a curated program yeah. of street performance. And it was amazing. There were like uh, a female motorcycle gangs. I'd never seen anything like it in my life. They had this amazing resin on the back wheels. Okay. And so what they did with the resin is they drew, they drew in the street by skidding along the street, but also whilst they were drawing in the gravel, it, these the resin was burning, and it was burning a kind of cu- coloured smoke. Oh, that's what I could see in the film. Yeah, I tried to figure it was out what amazing was the, coloured smoke. The quality it was, of those images. It was like sensory overload. Yeah. Like, I didn't. You, you almost were like, "What? Where am I? This is some strange neverworld where everyone's like fantastical." And then they had like animal walkers. They had like kids with snakes around their necks and yeah. huge, massive chameleons, Mardi Gras Indians, like dancers, um, drill teams, an amazing hairdressing community that just came out and did these like uh, cutoffs. I can't explain it. They're just, uh, but it was an amazing afternoon and so well done. And it, I just thought that's what Prospect Free was yeah. missing. It's strange in a way street. that they avoided that, or they kind of didn't. They skirted around it. Well, I just think it's, that's, a, that's the malady of the curator, isn't it? Yeah. Like, you, you can't really be a curator and go and do a biennial in mm. a city like New Orleans. You need to move there. Yeah. You can't just fly in every now and then and talk to people and, and then get some work together and put it up. It's about engaging with the city. But, the, I mean, the other, the, other, the other side to this story is that they needed some money and they needed someone to come in and attract, you know, uh, collectors and people who, who may be willing to pump money into the biennial so they can have another one. Mm. But my hope is, like, next year, I mean, or ne- the next two years, Prospect 4 will just take into account the amazing aspects of the city. And just by pulling the city into the biennial more, yeah. or allowing the biennial to bleed into the streets and or, or, to, or, or to fall into the streets, rather. Because, like, nobody needs to go to New Orleans to stand in a gallery. That is not <laughs> what you need to... Honestly, it's not... Yeah, it's happening outside, which brings me to the point you make. You sort of open the, your piece with, really, which is about gentrification yeah. and this kind of resistance <laughs> that uh, New Orleans sort of represents in yeah. a way that perhaps places like London, certainly, and also New York with mm. Brooklyn, Peckham, Hackney here, um, you know, that they've kind of, in a way, been nobbled or eaten or taken up by these these processes very rather startlingly quickly, actually. Um, yeah. And you you sort of offer this this model. New Orleans is suggest suggestive of a sort of resistance towards those those things yeah new orleans seems to me like my my thing my perception of gentrification at the moment is that the model that we all subscribe to whether or not it is the reality or not is that artists and creatives move in and then people like yuppies move in and then the property prices go up and all the artists have to move out but at the same time people who originally lived there have to move as well yeah. nobody can afford there anymore it becomes this horrible corporate enclave of lots of chain shops <laughs> but um uh, part of me also, but I don't necessarily know if that is the real model. I'm, I'm not too sure. Uh, but, so basically, what I was saying is, with New Orleans, you can see a model um, that's not just gentrification; it's regeneration. It's like saying, what is it that attracts people to come? Say, for instance, to South London now. It is that it's a multicultural neighbourhood mm-hmm. with a lot of different things going on. It's not just the art scene. It's just the fact that there are lots of people living side by side. And something of that spirit should be preserved. That's what I think regeneration is, basically. Regeneration through encouraging capital to come in, yeah, through business. But also being aware that you have a responsibility to the, to the, the, the residents and the people who are also coming there newly and wanting to be involved in the sort of atmosphere that the residents have maintained 
And so in New Orleans, I feel that people, artists coming to the city, are coming to the city because of the spirit of the city. You know, when artists come to London, it's not necessarily because they think London is a fantastic, amazing place where you're going to meet loads of people. It's almost like, well, you can't really make a success of it anywhere else except for London. Mm. I mean, not, that's not the only reason, but it's not, you don't, it's rare that you meet people who are like, I've come to this area because it's amazing and I love it here and I really want to keep it as it is. I think that, that some of that spirit gets swallowed up because we're all fighting to keep our heads above water because it's so expensive to live here and it's so expensive to live in New York. Mm. It's really hard to think about your responsibility to the neighbourhood or or all those different things. And so the community that you're surrounded in becomes this strange sort of um, uh, entity that you have to engage with through education projects or outreach projects. But in New Orleans, it felt to me like some, like the way that in some of the smaller galleries are fu- functioning was like the community was just part of what was going on. Mm-hmm. They didn't have to go out and coax the community to come into the gallery. They were just um, they were intermingling in a way that felt natural and real. Yeah, at one point in your film, actually, the, towards the end, it's probably the, one of the more poignant moments mm-hmm. is where the one of the artists you're talking to he describes how you know it's the creativity in the face of poverty. Yeah, and in a way. I mean, describing this notion of gentrification here, because what you get is, well, historically we've seen this this city, our cities, such as London, New York, uh, you know, being swollen by you know money and pushing out what was in it for the at the beginning, you know, artists yeah. or you know the marginal, the kind of dispossessed, which is you know historically where city, cities w- was or you yeah. know, used to be, and in a way, New Orleans still represents that because it doesn't have that same flourishing. Let's say. Uh, you know, it's stricken, still stricken by, to some extent, this poverty. Well, you know, London is too. Yeah. <laughs> London is stricken by yeah, poverty. It certainly is, but it's, forget, pushed, yeah. it's certainly pushed under. It's pushed under, yeah. and also, you, you have to acknowledge, like, the working class has been so utterly demoralised in Britain. Yeah. We don't know, like, I mean, I'm saying we, and people, but I, I identify as working, I grew up on a council estate, yeah. I didn't have any money when I was growing up. And the thing is, you know, we, it's the same trick that they played with slavery. They turned around, like, the hardest working people in America and yeah. made them, like, these sloven cheats who are lying. And it's the same thing with the working class. I mean, they, they did some of the hardest work in this country. And, and since the miners' strike, it's, it's just been this um, progression of demonizing or, mm. or just diminishing the working class. So it's almost like some of that spirit, that creativity has been... I don't know what the sort of bureaucratized, mechanized, and propagandized out of the working class community. And it's, it's like, it would be fantastic to be able to bring that back in somehow because, yeah, I think that's, that would be a real tragedy yeah. because that spirit is still in London. It still is in the, in the UK as well. But somehow um, the, the working class or ha- has been changed into the scapegoat for all these different things that are going wrong. Not only um, are they sponging off the state, but they're, they're right-wing reactionaries who can't stand immigrants, you know? And it, it's a real shame that that's happened. So, yeah, I think it, maybe that's the thing. People aren't coming to London thinking, well, London had a really amazing, thriving, working-class, creative community. It's, that's, that awareness sort so of isn't yeah. there because it's been erased yeah. somehow, possibly. Well, if it is, it's certainly a tourist idea, maybe even yeah. a Cockney you know, version or some sort of you know, yeah. Apple and Pears version of reality. But, the Bowdells. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know. But uh, what was I going to try and say? I mean, what really, I mean, what we're talking about is the, 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 the flourishing or the potential for diversity at, a, at, a, at any level, really. Yeah. And I think those kind of things have been cut away certainly Certainly, you know, we talked a little bit, we could touch about our education here and mm. those kind of subjects, but certainly uh, not that we 
have to hold on to art as a as the true space here we're trying to defend but uh I've, you know. I, just one more thing to say on that subject is that like um it's weird because it's london is slowly being changed for international capital international capital for capital that's mm. the thing it's being changed into this airport for like these businessmen who are flying in and doing these amazing world deals that none of us know about and it's and also we're being held to ransom by the idea that if we tax anyone they're going to leave like who's going to want to go and live in dubai people come to london because it's got a thriving multicultural yeah. community an amazing art scene a brilliant music scene amazing bars amazing theater it's not because of these like tax release that they're it's offering coming dubai isn't it well, I mean, it depends. It de- <laughs> it's going to become. I- I've never, I've never been to Dubai, and uh, uh, you know, I, because of what happened to Groove Rider, <laughs> I don't know if you know. <laughs> like, I'm not going to Dubai ever. Um, no, but I mean that the logical consequence yeah. of, of, of uh, building more and more spectacular towers that are only yeah. there for international buyers to buy sort of second homes or or homes to rent, mm. and uh, the working class not just being pushed down but pushed out. We don't even know where they've gone from yeah. South London, actually. Yeah. Um, you could see if that carries on for another 50 years or 30 years or even 20 years, you, you, you'd have some city that's more like Dubai. Yeah, than, exactly. Than London. Yeah, I, mean, I think it's a lovely phrase, the safety deposit box, boxes in the sky, mm. which I think is, you know, they, they are just literally, you know, where people put their money. Yeah. But it's just like we need to encourage, like, this is what is amazing about the city, the people, the creativity of the city. That's what needs to be encouraged. And that is how we should... Um, uh, sort of um, orient regeneration in this city by maintaining and celebrating that spirit and that is the reason why people come here that is the reason why capital floods here it's not just because there's like amazing opportunities on the Docklands but do you not think that within that there is a sort of community of artists and so on that also although they sustain here they are also moving out and we've, we we can talk about this forever but I mean yeah. from <laughs> you know from Berlin you know which is almost a, a, a equally an outmoded outdated uh, mm. subject considering what's happening to berlin yeah um but you know other areas areas such as the south coast now and so on and so forth these areas are being you know populated by artists as well so you know there is this inverse in a way whereby in the beginning cities were the driving force for artistry artistic practices and artistic sort of avant-garde or whatever mm-hmm. and the inverse of that is happening now and we're having to move to the suburbs uh where pre- previously you know the middle class is perhaps occupied but it's also who is moving to the suburbs i'm saying the I, artists are yeah, yeah. It's now cheaper but i'd say like who are the artists these days <laughs> <laughs> i'd say that there's not many working class artists out there <laughs> really, really, yeah. I, that's my perception so it's like I, you know, I don't know. Yeah, you're, you're right. Definitely, that is happening. Yeah. I, I, you know, I don't know. I don't know. So I was reading this book about the miners' strike today, and I'm just yeah. like on this thing of like. <laughs> Are you saying there's a sort of stranglehold of the upper classes? It's monoculture. Pra- yeah. Come on, yeah. London is being strangled yeah. by monoculture. I went to the Royal College of Art today. Like, you know, it's it's so. I, I don't know. I just think we need to do something about encouraging the diversity that really made the city thrive and jump and be an amazing, scary, exciting overwhelming place to be as opposed to this corporatized bureaucratized landscape of steel concrete and uh you know anti-homeless sleeping mechanisms yeah we do have resistance though we do have That's resistance. True, yes <laughs> we do have in fact i think i've got time to i've got time to pull out your res- the resistance you talk about resistance or fight in your article at some point i do you do you do you talk about constant combat Oh, constant combat. Well, anyhow, that's in Paul O'Kane's feature, which we're <laughs> running out of time. But uh, you talk a little bit about that, and it's uh, the idea of, uh, yeah, to the sort of uh, fighting, brave-hearted fighting 
So I think we'll end on that note. Yes. Uh, so I want to <laughs> thank Paul and Morgan for joining me this cold and wet wintry evening. And uh, thank you for listening. I'm Chris McCormack. Thank you. Thank you.